0: Our great and holy God, we have gathered together because we want to meet with the living God. We want to hear from you, but you don't speak in voices, you don't speak in dreams, you don't speak in feelings now. You speak through the written word of God, the Bible. We have the Bible. We have it with us. We have your word. It is true, living, reliable, faithful, unchanging, and life-transforming. Great God, we have spent nearly two years looking into the book of Isaiah. We have learned of the character of God. We have seen your holiness, your love, your salvation, your wrath, your anger, your justice, your promises. Father, yet again, we pray... That you would powerfully come and be in our midst in a way that we would say God is certainly among us. We pray with Moses when he was on Mount Sinai that you would show us your glory. Show us more glory than Moses even saw. That we would behold Christ, that we would behold the fullness of your word, that we would see and love and worship you, triune God, in the ways that you have revealed yourself in the book of Isaiah. Father, would you please help me as the preacher to take so much of what I have studied and learned and so much on my heart to share. Help me to preach with God given power. That it would not be the human mouth, the human lips of a man in this pulpit, that it would be the voice of Almighty God speaking through a weak messenger like me. And Lord, with that, would you help every single one of us in this room, younger and older, married and single, male and female that we would hear the word of God, that we would receive it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which performs its work in us who believe. So watch over your word. We pray, O God, that your word would bear much fruit for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 6. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 6. As you're turning there, just a a brief note, just so I don't forget. Next week, I'm going to preach 2 Timothy chapter 3 and 4. I'm going to focus on chapter 4, preaching the word, why preaching is so important. But I'm going to spend a good bit of time dealing with the context of 2 Timothy 3 and 4. And then the week after that, I'm going to give a theology of the church from the book of Ephesians. And then when we gather together after that, we will begin our next book in the book of James. But today, let's conclude the wonderful book of Isaiah. Follow with me as I read Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with the burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. A man named Paul pastored a church in Sydney, Australia. He was commanded to shut down and cease meeting because of COVID. Micah was a young single man in his 20s. He was a hardworking man who felt the pressure to work more. Meetings abounded, clients had to be visited. More amounts of work quickly came to his inbox. He was tired, weak, weary, and quickly becoming burnt out. His church attendance began to wane because he was so busy. He was so overwhelmed. He was so tired. He was so overworked. Consider Barb. Barb was an older woman who has walked with Christ for decades, but her city, her neighborhood, her country has been spiraling down in violence, in evil, in anarchy, and in shamelessness. Barb knows her Bible, but she she fears. She's afraid. She sometimes wakes in the middle of the night wondering if harm has come to her doorstep. If she's honest, Barb would say, I, I worry about the future. Or Jim and Joanne. Jim and Joanne have served Christ together, but now with the recession on the horizon, shortages in their local supermarkets and finances that are quite tight, it's, it's just so much for them to handle. I mean, the the stresses of life are now beginning to strain their marriage. They're more critical of one another. They're more fearful of the future. They're more impatient toward each other. And they're just confused about what's going on in life. Or Amir. Amir is a new believer in a predominantly Muslim country. And yet his nation faces the looming and the ongoing threat of national security from neighboring countries. There's danger in walking with Christ. There's danger in even having and holding and reading a Bible. It seems to be right around the corner. And frequently there are battles and rockets and terrorist attacks and suicide bombings and other nations that constantly threaten war. Even Amir's own safety is at risk. Now, the question I have. We're dealing with Paul, Micah, Barb, Jim and Joanne, and Amir. What do these people Need. What is the greatest need that all of these individuals have? Different situation in life, different circumstance in life, different season of life. But what is the one main need that they have? They need. They need to see God high and lifted up. They need to see the Holy One of Israel full of glory and full of grace. They need to see God, the Creator, and God who is compassionate. They need to see the Holy One of Israel who is totally sovereign and yet He is willing to save. What all of these individuals need is they need to see God rightly. They need to trust God fully. They need to obey God humbly. That is what you and that is what I need. And that is what Isaiah has been teaching over and over and over for nearly two years. I'm going to say this quite a number of times tonight. So here's one of the key statements that I want to convey. In a shaky world, you have a strong God. In a shaky world, you have a strong God who provides a sufficient salvation and a splendid future for all who trust in Him. You and I live in incredibly shaky times. We live in a shaky world. We live in a sh- world where the foundations are crumbling, as the Psalms say. But Christian, you need to know that you have a strong God who provides a sufficient salvation and a splendid future for all who trust in him. My goal for the next little while is to summarize the book of Isaiah for you. Now, I know and I realize that we have been going chapter by chapter through the book of Isaiah. And it's been helpful. We've we've benefited. We've learned, I trust, and, and hopefully understood more of this book. But my goal today is to help you understand the parts in light of the whole. I want you to see how each chapter fits in light of the overall theme. The chapters are great, but Isaiah didn't write a chapter. He wrote a book. And so I want you to see how verses and chapters and sections fit together in the overall argument. And so to do this, if you're taking notes, you can just jot down these simple headings. And I'm going to give you these, and I have a lot to say in between these headings. Number one, I want to give you a review, a simple review of the book of Isaiah. And that's going to take much of our time. But then second, I want to give you the relevance of the book of Isaiah. So why? Why Isaiah? What what does it mean for you now? What, What is the benefit of the book of Isaiah for us today? After we review Isaiah and then we study the relevance of Isaiah, I want to give you the core theme of Isaiah in one simple statement. So that's sort of where we are headed for the remainder of our time together. So let's begin with the review of Isaiah the review of Isaiah. In my study, even this week, as I was going back through many of my notes in the book, uh, some authors have estimated that there are over 400 quotations, allusions, or maybe we could add a category of an echo, kind of a faint allusion or echo, in the New Testament to the book of Isaiah. 400. That's a lot of times that the New Testament Quotes or uses the language of the book of Isaiah. 47 of the chapters in Isaiah are quoted or alluded to in the New Testament. Only the book of Psalms is referred to more frequently than Isaiah in the New Testament. But let's talk about Isaiah the man before we get into the book as a whole. Isaiah the man, because the man is an amazing man. He's a prophet. He's a, he's a weak man with a mighty God. He's a weak man with a strong God. We know that he lived in Jerusalem. We know that he uh, loved the city of Jerusalem because he mentions Jerusalem with more than 25 different names or descriptions in his prophecy. And we know from the book of Isaiah that he, he, he has easy access to the royal court of the king. He could come right to the presence of the king of Israel, and that probably means that he had royal blood in his veins. Jewish tradition tells us that he was the cousin of King Uzziah. We know from the book of Isaiah that Isaiah was married and that he at least had two sons. He began his ministry in the year 740 BC. That was a turbulent time. Here you are, the little nation of Judah, and you've got this massive world power. They're the nation of Assyria, and they're coming on the horizon for attack. They're coming, and you don't stand a chance against this massive world superpower. Assyria is just conquering and defeating city and nation after nation, and they're at your doorstep. And Isaiah gets the call to prophesy about that time. He prophesies at the beginning of the year of King Uzziah. And when he received the call of God, which we read earlier in Isaiah 6. Oh, he he responds enthusiastically to that call. Even though he knows from the very outset that he's going to have a very difficult, a discouraging, and a relatively fruitless ministry. Not many people are going to hear him. Not many people are going to care about him, and not many people are going to respond favorably to the word. Well, after a prophetic preaching ministry of 60 years, Isaiah died, we know from tradition, under the reign of the wicked king Manasseh. There's no biblical record of how the prophet Isaiah died, but we, we know that he died from church history, from Justin Martyr, who said that the Jews sawed him to death with a wooden saw because they did not like his message. Another ancient source fills in the gap a little bit. He was running, and Isaiah found shelter in a hollow tree. And his persecutors found him, they discovered him, and they killed him by sawing him in half. Isaiah's favorite title for God. His favorite title for God is the theme that threads the whole book of Isaiah together. And that is the Holy One of Israel. The only true God, the living God, is the Holy One of Israel. He uses it 26 times in the book of Isaiah. He calls God Holy 33 additional times in the book. There were four kings. In the span of the 60 years that Isaiah prophesied, there were four kings, the good, the bad, and the ugly. The first Judean king was a man named Uzziah. He was like like the engineer, the entrepreneur. He was the man who invented all kinds of military uh, gadgets and commodities. He was a man. He was a gardener. He was a wise man. He was a brilliant leader. And Isaiah began ministering about that time. And then his son Jotham became king. He was a good king for a very short time. And then his son Ahaz, he was the worst king of Judah's history. Ahaz was a selfish man. He murdered people. He killed his own children to false gods. He shut the doors of the temple. He didn't want to listen to Isaiah at all. And then Ahaz had a son named Hezekiah. Amazingly and remarkably, he was a good man and a good king. And he did fear and trust the Lord. Ministry in turbulent times politically. You've got the good, the bad, and the ugly. Isaiah knew it, and he experienced it. But let's talk about the writer Isaiah for a minute, because in the Hebrew manuscript that Isaiah wrote, we know that he was a literary mastermind. There's probably no book like it in the whole Old Testament Hebrew language. His writing. And boys and girls, you're taking English and you're, you're reading and you're learning to understand that. and You're learning verbs and nouns and connections and prepositions. Isaiah mastered that. He was a beautiful writer with word plays and structures and even words that sounded similar. He was an amazing literary writer. But he was also a man... Who had a compassionate heart. He loved his God, but he had a compassionate heart for those to whom he preached. And the people to whom he preached didn't like him, and they wanted to kill him, and they didn't listen to his message, and they mocked him. And yet Isaiah even wept at times, we read in the book. He had a compassionate heart even amidst an apathetic audience. But what kept him going? What kept the man Isaiah going? He had a transcendent God. It wasn't because life seemed good. It wasn't because life was always happy and comfortable. He kept going and he kept serving God even when times were tough because he served and worshipped and adored a transcendent God. He was a man of unflinching courage. Isaiah teaches that salvation... Is in the Lord. So fasten your seatbelt. Let's, let's go on a jet tour together. Through the book of Isaiah. And if you want to begin with me. Let's just begin in chapters 1 to 5. Chapters 1 to 5. And you need to understand this. Because the way Isaiah begins these opening five chapters. This is the introduction. It's like a sermon of mine. It's a long introduction. Before he gets into the book. Uh, he gives five chapters of introduction. Because he has to hammer this one theme home. The utter sinfulness of Israel. Chapter 1 verse 2 begins with a lawsuit. God has a lawsuit against sinners. Chapter 1, verse 2. Listen, O heavens, hear, O earth. The Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. What's Isaiah doing? God is calling the cosmic heavens and the earth as witnesses in the heavenly courtroom saying, Israel, you're guilty. You've transgressed. You have sinned against me. You have sinned. Chapter 1 is the rebellion. Chapter 2 is the pride of men. All over chapter 2, God says he will punish the pride of men. Verse 17 of chapter 2, the loftiness of men will be abased, but the Lord alone will be exalted. In chapter 3, when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. In chapter 3, the rebelliousness of Israel brought about women, rulers, and childish rulers. That was a judgment from God. In chapter 4, even with all of that judgment, there's a small little chapter of hope. God has a remnant. And he's going to bring the branch. That's kind of a code word for the coming Messiah, Jesus. And then in chapter 5, God says in these opening seven verses in this beautiful song that God sings for Israel, verse 7, I look for justice, but all I find is bloodshed. And I want to find righteousness among my people, but all I find is cries of evil distress. You've sinned. You're guilty. That's why Isaiah now, in chapter 6, gives his call. In the year that King Uzziah died, that's the first chronological marker, Isaiah says, I had a vision, and I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filling heaven's temple, and God is exalted. He is lifted up. And then there's even angels, and they they are singing, holy, holy, holy. It's the call of Isaiah, the commission of Isaiah. And yet Isaiah says, I'm undone. I'm, I, 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 I've am i seen God the king. And God cleanses him with the coal that comes from the altar. Now, listen carefully. What happens to Isaiah individually in chapter 6 is part of the whole book of Isaiah. It will happen to Israel as a nation in the future. Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and Isaiah was cleansed. Israel one day will see the Lord high and lifted up. They will put their trust in him and they will be cleansed. It is an amazing way that Isaiah speaks of his call, his commission, and his cleansing. But now in chapter 7, you have in your bulletin there a little outline that That sort of gives us a little bit more detail. I'm just going to summarize this. But in chapter 7 all the way to 39, Isaiah wants you to understand the crisis of faith. What's the big issue in all these chapters? Israel, are you going to trust in God or are you going to trust in yourselves? Or a human deliverer, or your money, or your wisdom, or your past? Are you going to trust in God or anything else? Well, there's a test. Test number one, verse chapter 7 to 12. It's a historical test, and it's with a man named Ahaz. He's one of the most ungodly men in all the Old Testament. He's a terribly wicked king of Israel and Judah. And the prophet comes to Ahaz and says, Are you going to trust God? And guess what the king says? No way. Ask a sign. God will answer. Just, Just ask God of any sign. And the prophet says, No The prophet, uh, the king said, "No, I will not." Well, then Isaiah said, "Well, then God's going to give you a sign. A virgin is going to conceive, and she's going to bring forth a son, and you will know him because he has a name that is Emmanuel, God with us. A virgin is going to conceive, and he's going to be the savior." But Ahaz wants none of that. Wants none of that. He could care less about that. Well then, in chapters 13 all the way to 35, Isaiah is going to very beautifully and creatively give lessons or reasons why you should trust God. Remember, church family, when we spent all those weeks going through the foreign nations? Remember that? In Isaiah 13 and 14, we talked about Babylon. Don't trust the glory that you have as a nation like Babylon. Don't trust chapters 15 to 18, Moab. The the scheming of Moab, the deceitfulness of Moab, the history of Moab, the power of Moab. Don't trust in them. Or Egypt, Isaiah 19 and 20, with the wisdom of Egypt and the power of Egypt and the refuge of Egypt. Don't trust in them. Chapter 21 and 22 of Isaiah. What about Jerusalem? We're, we love our city. We love Jerusalem. This is God's place. And Isaiah said, don't even trust in your own city. Well, what about Isaiah 23? How about, how about wealth? How about money? Like the people of Tyre and Sidon way up in the north. Let's trust in Tyre and Sidon way up in Damascus. And Isaiah said, no, that would be absolutely foolish. Why trust in all of the nations when God is going to judge them anyway? Trust the Lord. And remember how we saw over and over and over don't trust your money, don't trust your leaders, don't trust your politics, don't trust your past, don't trust your wisdom, don't trust yourself, don't trust your future, don't trust anything that this world has to offer because it will fail you. It's like hammer blow. After hammer blow, Isaiah says, trust the Lord trust the Lord church family you and I need to hear that we don't trust our jobs we don't trust our money we don't trust our bank account we don't trust others we don't trust our political leaders for our deliverance we can't we have to trust the Lord and him alone well then you come to Isaiah chapter 24 and Isaiah 24 to 27 is this little unit that that Commentators call Isaiah's apocalypse. Why? Because these chapters tell us that God has all history, past, present, and future under his control. Why Why look to the things of this world when you could look to God? And he holds everything together. And then in Isaiah 28 to 33, again, don't trust the nations. Living without God is foolish. In chapters 30 and 31, all worldly solutions will fail you. In chapter 32 and 33, we need to trust in a God who promises the kingdom of triumph. Now, if you look with me at chapter 36. In Isaiah 36 to 39, now please don't miss this because this is so key for Isaiah's whole argument. In Isaiah 7 to 12, there was a historical test, number one, to the king Ahaz. Will you trust God? And he said, no. Here's a parallel test. Test number two. To Ahaz's son, Hezekiah. Will you trust God? Guess what Hezekiah says? You got it. Absolutely. In chapter 36, what we read is that Sennacherib... And the Assyrians, the mighty army, are coming to Israel. They're knocking at Hezekiah's door. In chapter 37, verse 1, Hezekiah tears his clothes. He covers himself in sackcloth. He enters the house of the Lord, and he begs God for deliverance. He even prays in chapter 37, verse 16, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, you're enthroned above the cherubim. You are God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. What a prayer of trust. Don't, don't forget this lesson. When something comes your way in life that is way bigger than you can handle, you have the same test of trust that Isaiah had. Now, it's not with the Assyrian army, but it's with the test, will you trust God? Maybe it's a financial thing. Maybe it's uncertainty about the future. Maybe it's an illness. Whatever the situation or danger or trouble could be, something way bigger than you could handle, what do you do? Learn from Hezekiah, trust in the Lord. He passed the test. His father, Ahaz, failed the test. But he, now in chapters 36 and 39, he passes the test. But there's a problem. And Isaiah is doing this deliberately. The problem is in chapter 38. Hezekiah gets sick. He gets sick. Well, he prays to the Lord and God heals him. And then in chapter 39, Babylon comes, and Hezekiah acts a little pridefully, showing all the treasures of what Hezekiah has. And so what we see is that Hezekiah is ill, and he's fallible, and he's prideful, and then at the end of the section, he dies. Boy, Hezekiah was a great king. Maybe he's Emmanuel. Well, no, he got sick. No, he's prideful. No, he ended up dying. He can't be the Emmanuel. Hmm, I wonder who that could be. Isaiah wants you to be scratching your head, asking that question as you come to chapter 40. In Isaiah 40 to 66, Isaiah gives you comfort, comfort, comfort. Now, I don't know about you, and this is so amazing to me, but you and I live in a culture that offers no comfort. I mean, this is no, there's no stability, there's no comfort, there's no security. Where do you go, if it's not to the Lord, to find any comfort? Where do you go? You have nowhere to go. Amazingly, in the second half of Isaiah... Isaiah chapters 40 all the way to 66. Isaiah is going to constantly tell you this wonderful theme. You can have comfort in the Lord because he will deliver you. He'll deliver you. He's faithful. He'll deliver his people, Israel. He'll deliver the nations who trust in him. What an amazing God. So chapter 40, look at verse 1. Comfort! Oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare has ended. And is her iniquity has been removed that she has received the Lord's hand. Double for all her sins. A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. You're probably thinking, wait a minute. That sounds like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Prepare a way In the desert for John the Baptist, who is preparing for the Messiah. You're exactly right. Deliverance is going to come through the Messiah. The Messiah. Chapters 40 and following shows us the unparalleled majesty of God. Now, I'm going to dwell on this for a minute because this is, I think, what you and I need. In these nine chapters, Isaiah 40 to 48... There are 216 verses. Out of all those verses, 115 of them speak of the unrivaled greatness and power of God. More than half. There's no one like our God. He he shows his power, his majesty, his exclusivity, his supremacy, his mercy, his anger, his wrath, his kingship. I love how Isaiah 40 is such a God-centered chapter. The whole point is get your eyes off of yourself and look by faith to the great God who rules over all. I, I like the way one author put it. He said... If you look at others, you're going to be distressed. If you look at yourself, you're going to be depressed. But if you look at God, you're going to be blessed. Well, Isaiah 40 tells you to do that. Don't look at others. Don't look within yourself. Look to God. A.W. Pink said, Happy is the soul that has been awed by the majesty of God. So look with me now, look with me at Isaiah chapter 44, Isaiah, no, no, 43, Isaiah 43, verse 11. I even, I am the Lord and there is no savior besides me. Look at Isaiah chapter 44 and verse eight. Don't tremble. Don't be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Is there any other rock I know of? None. Look at chapter 45. Chapter 45, verse 5. I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me there is no God. Verse 6. So that men may know that from the rising to the setting of the sun, there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is none other. Look toward the end of the chapter. Verse 21 ends. There is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a savior. There is none except me. I mean, do you get the point? God over and over is saying, I am the Lord. There is none other who can be compared to me. God has created the heavens. He's created the earth. Christian, what do you need in difficult times? Where do you find comfort? Looking to God. You can't miss that. That's the theme of Isaiah 40 to 48. God is the majestic God who will deliver his people and he will fulfill his promises and bring them back from exile when they are judged for their sin. Well, then you come to the very end of chapter 48, verse 22. Look at the very last verse of Isaiah 48. It, it becomes kind of a little transition verse in Isaiah. Isaiah forty-eight, twenty-two: there is no peace for the wicked. And that's a sobering reminder, but that's true, isn't it? There's no peace for the wicked. There's no peace in the heart, no peace with God, no peace with others, no peace in the world for the wicked. Well, what do you do? What do you do? Well, the next nine chapters, Isaiah 49 to 57, tell us about God's atonement and God's saving work for Israel, not just physically, but spiritually from the bondage of their sin. And all of this, this is so cool. Isaiah is so brilliant the way he does it. He brings it all together around four songs. We call them servant songs. They are prophecies about Jesus long before Jesus is ever born. The first is in Isaiah chapter 42 and then one is in chapter 49. But look at chapter 50. Look at chapter 50 for the third servant song. We see it here in verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples so that I might know how to sustain the weary one with the word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen like a disciple. The Lord has opened my ear and I was not disobedient nor did I turn back. This is like Jesus saying each morning I need to be taught from my father. Verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike me. I gave my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. For the Lord, God, helps me. This is a promise that the Emmanuel king is going to suffer. If you suffer, if you go through hardship... If you've got times in your life when you're ridiculed or beaten or spit upon or mocked or slandered for your relationship with God, the suffering servant Jesus is your forerunner. He did it before you did. Look at chapter 52. Now we come, I think, to the apex of the whole book of Isaiah. What does Isaiah want you to know? That God's deliverance is found in the servant. 52.13 Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Meaning he will be God. He is God. He's exalted. He's the sovereign one. He is supreme. He is fully divine. But, but chapter 53 verse 2. Look at the humiliation. He grew up like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. What did what did Jesus do? What did God do to the son? Verse four, surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. The amazing work of Emmanuel is not what people did to him. It's what God the Father did to him on the cross. God was so pleased, according to verse 10, to crush the servant on the cross. With the weight of sin and the weight of divine wrath that you and I deserve, God's amazing comfort and the plan of salvation comes to sinners because of what God did to his son on the cross in your place. At the end of verse 11, here's what happens. My servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. But the book doesn't end there. It doesn't end there because chapter 54 tells us how you respond to this. Well, how do you respond to Jesus' work on the cross? You ought to shout for joy, chapter 54. 55, you need to come to this one by faith. And chapter 56 tells us you need to obey this one and submit to this suffering servant. In chapter 57, if you don't, God is going to judge you. Then we come to chapter 58. And these last nine chapters, yes, 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 God will deliver his people physically. Physically. From exile. Yes, he delivers them spiritually from sin through the Emmanuel servant Jesus. But God has a plan for the future. And these last nine chapters are the future transformation work for Israel and for all of the nations. Where we learn about this great kingdom. Where we learn about how God is going to rule. And how God is going to reign. And how there will be righteousness. And there will be peace. And Jerusalem will be the city of joy. It will be a city that will never be forsaken. And so Isaiah prays. Oh God rend the heavens and come down. Oh God come. Bring this work. Bring the kingdom. Chapter 65, God gives a lot of details about the kingdom, the hope, the joy, the delight, the peace, the gladness, the long life, the order, the godly kingship of the Messiah. Chapter, 50, uh, chapter 66, at the very end, look with me at chapter 18. In Isaiah 66, 18, I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. God says, they shall come and see my glory. Can you imagine a day when the nations of the earth come and they see the glory, the weightiness, the worth, the splendor of God? Verse 19, I will set a sign among them and send survivors from them to the nations. At the end of verse 19, they will come and declare my glory among the nations. Then they will bring all their brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord. They will come to my holy mountain, Jerusalem. Verse 21, I will take some of them for priests and for Levites. And then we read in verse 23 at the end, all mankind will come and bow down before me. You and I might read that and think, man, that seems so impossible right now. praise God, we serve a God who can work miracles. We serve a God who has already told us in chapters 40 to 48, there's none like him. He created the heavens. He can do all things. But the loving, faithful preacher ends with a warning. Verse 24, then they, the righteous, will go forth and they will look on the corpses of men who have transgressed. Now, if we could do a little bit of comparison, this is one of the key words of Isaiah. Transgression is a key theme in chapter 1, showing the sin, the transgression against God. And now at the end, all those who die in their transgressions. Their worm will not die. Their fire will not be quenched. They will be an abhorrence to all mankind. Isaiah, the preacher of the Lord. The, the prophet of God, he wants you to know that yes, there is a great sin problem, but God will solve it in Emmanuel, And so you need to trust in him and comfort comes to you, not as you look within yourself, but you look upward to God and his power. And all of that comes to an apex in the substitutionary work of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he will return again one day and establish a kingdom. But I want you, though, to look with me at a second heading that we need to look at. If point number one was the review of Isaiah, now what a review that was. That was a speedy one. That was a quick one. A jet tour. You say, so what? That was written a long time ago. Why is Isaiah needed for us today? Let me give you some reasons. Number one, you and I need Isaiah because you and I must declare that God is uniquely holy. Allah is not God. The gods of Hinduism and Buddhism and all the different religions and worldviews of the world are not God. God. There is only one God, and he's revealed himself in the written word, the Bible. Every other God is a lie. We need Isaiah because we must declare and uphold that God is holy. It means different, set apart, unique, distinct, not like us. We need Isaiah second so that we might call every person to repent from sin and trust in Christ. Why do we need Isaiah Because Isaiah's theme, like a good faithful preacher, prophet, is turn from your sin and trust in the Lord. Third, we need Isaiah to demonstrate the unshared glory of God. Now, we see it online, we see it on the TV, we see it on social media. A lot of people want glory. In our sinful flesh, we want glory. We want honor. We want recognition. We want fame. We want people to applaud us and say, what a guy. Isaiah says, no, no, no. What a God. Isaiah says, we must demonstrate the unrivaled, the unshared glory of God. He shares his glory with no one. The only way that you can be saved is to come to God by faith. So we both in the Lord and him alone. We need Isaiah today, fourth, so that God may be glorified among the nation of Israel and among all the nations of the world. God has a great plan for the Jews, for the Gentiles, whatever continent, whatever people group, whatever place, God has a plan we need Isaiah so so urgently. Let me give you this number five, to give stability in unstable times. You're going to open up your email tomorrow morning. You're going to go to the news source. You're going to get, you're going to get your inbox of all these different headlines, and you're going to think, "Man, this this place is crazy. It's out of control." And you might think it is, but it's not. Where do you get stability in unstable times? We get it from the Holy One of Israel. We get it from God. We get it from an enlarged view of God. You say, so Jeff, how does this impact me Monday morning? How does it impact me Tuesday morning? How does it impact me when I'm homeschooling, when I'm driving to work, when I'm sending the emails, when I'm working out? How does this impact me? Remember this, number one, your God is the only majestic King. Our president gave a speech this week. He's not the ultimate authority. God is. There are dictators all across the world and prime ministers all across the world. And there are emperors of that sort in the ancient world and similar today. They are not in the ultimate authority. Your God is. Another way that this impacts us every day is that your Christ suffered in your place. A Christian, I believe that as time goes on, you and I are going to fall more into the wake of Isaiah. He suffered, he served along an apathetic people. He gave God's message to an ungodly people who could care less about what he wanted to say. And yet he didn't say, Well, I'm not seeing a whole lot of fruit, so I give up. He kept going, he kept ministering. He, why? Because faithfulness is always connected to your obedience to God, not to the visible results that you see. You and I need Isaiah each morning. Because our God deserves to be worshipped. He deserves to be worshipped. He deserves to be worshipped. And there's one more point that i got to bring out before we draw this to a close with the final crux and theme. Just one more point. In the amazing plan of God, I didn't plan it this way, but a few years ago, when COVID sort of hit and sort of shut everything down... About that time, we were going through the foreign nation section in Isaiah. And I began thinking about this very point. When crises invade your life, whether it's COVID or whatever trial, whatever unexpected invasion in your life, how do you respond? And that's an important question for us. How do you handle crises? Because crises are revealing points. A crisis could come in the form of health. The crisis could come in the form of, of a personal crisis, a financial crisis. It could be an economic crisis. It could be, it could be a national security crisis. It could be a supply crisis, a, a global crisis. It might be a relational crisis, an emotional crisis. Crises reveal who you are. A crisis will not make a person. A crisis reveals what a person is really made of. And so Isaiah has been teaching when the crisis comes, whether it's the nation of Assyria or whatever, you'll either crumble in fear or will be courageous in faith. Isaiah says you'll either shrink back or you'll stand firm. Isaiah teaches when the crisis comes, you'll either get bitter at God or you'll get better as you walk with God. You'll either turn away from God and say, God, I don't like what you're doing. I don't agree with your plan. Or you'll trust in him. We need the book of Isaiah to carry us through the crises of life. And I don't know when crises are going to come. I don't know when a crisis may come your way or my way or our way or our nation's way. I don't know. But Isaiah gives us a big God to carry us through these crises. So I'll say what I said earlier. In a shaky world, you have a strong God... Who provides a sufficient salvation and a splendid future for all who trust in him. So that's the review. And then we saw number two, the relevance of Isaiah. Well, what about number three, just very quickly before we close. So what's the core theme? Jeff, in 66 chapters, what is the whole book of Isaiah about? I'll give it to you in one simple statement. Isaiah wants you to know that salvation is in the Lord. If you miss that, you miss the whole book of Isaiah. And if you miss that, you miss the gospel. We know this from Isaiah chapter 12. It is the song of the redeemed. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger has been turned away, and you comfort me. Isaiah 12, verse 2 Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength. He is my song. He has become my salvation. Verse 4, in that day you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, make them remember that his name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song, for he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud, shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. What is the core theme of Isaiah? Salvation is in the Lord. It's not in yourself. It's not in our culture. It's not in our world. It's not in the global, economic, scientific, whatever issues of the day. Salvation is in the Lord. In a shaky world, you and I have a strong God who provides a sufficient salvation and a splendid future for all who trust in him. And Isaiah is the preacher who is the God-enthralled evangelist proclaiming salvation in Emmanuel. So, how can God forgive you? How can God forgive you? You and I have transgressed. We've sinned. Well, Isaiah 53 gives the answer. Jesus was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Peter preached in Acts ten forty three to Jesus. All the prophets bear witness that whoever believes in Him will receive forgiveness of sins. Yeah, but but Isaiah fifty three one said. Yeah, but but Lord, who has believed our report? You ever you ever thought like that? I keep preaching, but nobody believes. I keep handing out tracts, but nobody believes. I write letters to my family, and nobody believes. I go on the streets, and nobody seems to believe. Who has believed this? Isaiah 7 verse 9, if you don't believe, surely you will not last, Isaiah said. So what does God say? What does God say to sinners? Isaiah 45, turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no one Acts 4.12, there is salvation and no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Has God forgiven you? Have you been counted righteous? Accepted by God, this holy one, this righteous one, through faith in him and him alone? The message of Isaiah is salvation is in The Lord. Isaiah. Had the courage of a Daniel. He had the sensitivity of a Jeremiah. He had the passion of a Hosea. And he had the anger of Amos. And he had the faith of Noah. Isaiah's courage is of such a nature. That all throughout the book of Isaiah. We don't find any place where Isaiah comes across as timid or fearful. And the question that I have in closing is, how do we get there? How do you live with such courage that you don't even come across as weak or timid at all? How do you get there? Because he knew his God. He knew his God. You won't Fear puny men when you fear the preeminent God. We're not going to fear world events when you trust the one who holds the world in his hands. The man who trembles before God will not tremble before men. Isaiah knew that. And that's what you and I need as well. We need a great, a big, a lofty, and a powerful God. I'll end with this. In the 1500s, the reformer, John Calvin, he had a life passion. And his life passion, by his own writings, his own testimony, was to recover and embody and preach the absolute reality and the full majesty of God. So he preached through books of the Bible. John Calvin had a profound sense of the glory of God. He said this. He said, what if you could fast forward time? And you imagined yourself, at the end of your life... You've just breathed your last and now you're standing before God. And you're giving an account for your life. What would you say to God? Here's what Calvin said when he was thinking about that future time. Oh God, the thing that I chiefly aimed at and that which I most diligently labored for Was the glory of your goodness and justice. That your character might shine forth. And that all of the beauty and blessings of Christ. Might be fully made known. Wow. Could you and I say that? If we fast forward to the end of our life. And sit before the Lord. Give an account of your life. What what was the key of John Calvin's life and ministry? He was mastered by the majesty of God. He was mastered by the majesty of God. And I would say that for me and for you and for John Calvin and for the prophet Isaiah. What does the book of Isaiah teach that we need to get and we need to maintain a profound sense of the majesty of God? Four. Isaiah ends by saying to this one, I will look. God says to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and the one who trembles at my word. May we have a lofty and a majestic and a powerful God to carry us through. Amen. Father, thank you for your word and the power of your scripture. Thank you that we serve the only triumphant creator God. You alone are God and there is none like you. We worship and we praise and we tremble before you. In Jesus name. Amen.